Welcome to the Be Free RE podcast, where you learn how to make your job optional. I'm your host, John, who's just getting started on his journey. But in the last year, I moved across the country, bought four apartments, make money as a landlord, no longer pay rent, and I have my first child. I'm joined by your co-host and my guide, Tony Angotti, who in five years quit his job and now manages over 80 units through a combination of house hacks, flips, and partnerships. So with that, let's jump into how you can do less of what you have to do and more of what you want to do. All right, Tony, sorry to pull you away from trivia with the family. I hope you, uh, I hope you won and you were able to name all 50 capitals, something like that. All but uh, New Mexico's. Santa, no, that Santa, wasn't even a question. Santa What's Fe. the capital of New Mexico? Santa Fe, right? Or Albuquerque? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't know the answer. Um, yeah, I don't know. I can probably only name a few of those. But yeah, no, I did not win. I uh, They didn't ask any questions about the two or three things that I actually know about. So <laughs> I, uh, I'm qualified to speak on a few different topics, and none of those came up in trivia. Oh, so, uh, so that's where that was. But um, hopefully, we have some better answers for our people that called in for today's episode than I did for trivia. Oh man, the transition is well. We're going to jump over to some real estate trivia, and I'm sure you'll do great, Tony. You're so great at the transitions. Let's hop into it. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Hey, Tony. It's Brandon from Lake Trove. I was just uh, wondering, what do you think the number one thing is that holds beginning real estate investors back and what your thoughts are on what they can do to overcome that? Uh, thanks a lot. Look forward to hearing your answer. All right. I have this pretty summed up well with another agent and I. We talk about it all the time with new investors and we say that they don't have the roll the dice mentality. So I don't necessarily mean that you should approach a real estate portfolio like gambling. But what I do mean is that you're never going to know everything and there is some element of risk. So there's two points that I find all the time that hold people back. The first is the thing that holds people back from even getting under contract on something in the first place, offering, that sort of thing. Usually you'll see online they talk about analysis paralysis, which is just like they overanalyze everything. They try to learn everything before they do it. And the truth is you're never going to learn this business by reading a book. You're only going to learn this business by pulling the trigger and buying a property and actually doing it. You can learn the basics, like all the basics that you need. That's obviously smart to do because if you don't do that, then your first property could be a total disaster. But, you know, you need to eventually just hit a certain critical mass. Like, I know enough to get started. I'm just going to do it. I say you need to be like smartly stupid. You need to be smart enough to know that this is a good investment long term but stupid enough to know that there's risk and still pull the trigger. So that's kind of off the cuff sort of answer. And then that also continues. Like I see a lot of people that get over that analysis paralysis. They still decide like, this is something I want to do. And then they get under contract on something. And then once they get under contract on a property, they'll terminate deals left and right because they'll get like a home inspection and they'll start digging and they'll always find a problem. And you can talk yourself out of any deal. Like 
you're never going to find a place that's 100% perfect. There's always going to be issues. There's always going to be risks. There's always going to be something. So you need to kind of understand that there's still going to be unknowns. So a lot of times people, they'll get into it and they'll want like this great value add property. It pencils out real nice. They get it under contract and then they get their home inspection and oh, the value add property has a bunch of repairs. And it's like, well, duh. I mean, that's what you're buying. <laughs> so like, like then don't freak out. Like you should have accounted for this up front. Like, you should have went into this with the expectation that you're buying a property that's going to need fixes. And some of those fixes will be unknown in scope. And if you're not willing to do that, then you need to consider a different asset class. You need to consider something more turnkey and buying turnkey is not horrible. Like if you buy a turnkey building, it could still be a great start. And then maybe you use that as a stepping off point to buying more value add deals whenever you feel more comfortable with them. But really the primary thing is just people being too afraid of the unknown when really the first property is more just for experience. It's like your first property, the most important thing is that you just get started because once you get started and you get a few buildings, then you're going to know a lot more about what you're doing. I promise that you won't go bankrupt unless you buy something really, really, really stupid. Like as long as you go into it with cash reserves and everything. And I think we have another question coming up about like what, uh, you know, how much money to have and stuff. But if you come at this business from a position of financial strength, then there's, you know, as long as you're not totally stupid when you buy it and you have a good mentor or agent or whoever on your side helping you out, you're not going to go bankrupt from your first deal <laughs> you could there's always elements of risk but trying but not getting started because you're trying to control that two percent risk factor is where i see most people go wrong mm. and then they stress out too much super somebody who's like super anxious and stressed out about everything try to find a business partner that levels you out maybe because like I see that too all the time. People who are just super stressed, anxious, all that kind of stuff. The second something doesn't go along with the expectations that they had in their head, it throws them off and it makes them, what's the expression, throw the baby out with the bathwater sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Like that's what they do. I don't know. I mean, I think that like you just getting started, you have a pretty good attitude on your first property. Like what are some things that you think made you get started that other people maybe don't? Um, I mean, for us, we picked what we wanted to do a deal that was affordable. So we called our, our first deal, the Academy. We went in knowing like, Hey, even if this goes South, uh, we're not going to lose everything and we will be financially. Okay. So that was kind of how we managed that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think to agree with you, like broadly, you need to think of it as an adventure. You're going in, you're not buying stock, you know, particularly for us, we were buying distressed properties that needed work, like more than $10,000 worth of work. So, you know, uh, stuff goes wrong and that's like, yeah, that's part of the fun in a weird way. Like, you know, the, the, the stories you and I laugh about are things that go wrong, you know, and it's probably the same, you know everyone has stories where things went wrong. It's funny. So you need to approach it like an adventure. And to that effect, I think you want 
a river guide, someone who's been down the <laughs> river many times, who knows what's around the corner, who knows what roaring rapids sound like. Uh, and that for us, that was finding an agent who personally invested in real estate, not helped other people invest, but personally was invested in real estate, particularly in the exact asset class we wanted to do. Um, so I, I think that's critical. And then uh, just, you know, kind of going in with, yeah, like this is an investment. There's risk involved. Capital is required. And being undercapitalized is really stressful, can damage your marriage, can damage your partnerships. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, if I had to give like a five-step plan, it would be like, listen to podcasts and read books. You're eventually going to hit this point where you're like, I've heard that before. At that time, you're going to go looking for deals and you're going to look for these things called the 2% deal. You're never going to find them. Uh, never is the wrong word. They're very difficult to find. And you're going to basically say, oh, I guess I need to adjust my expectations to what the market offers and look for something good right now, whatever right now means for you in the next three months, six months. So I think you should control not how many deals you get, but how many offers you make. So your goal should be to make 10 offers in the next three months, for example, because you can always offer at a price where it makes sense for you. Your agent might have something to say about it, but you know, <laughs> roughly you can get that that is within your control, right? Closing deals actually isn't in your control 100%. Offers are almost 100% in your control. And and then from there, you know, you need to say like, okay, here we go, right? You have an idea for what you're in for, but you need to understand like there's going to be some goofy stuff. You're going to be go up. Yeah, yeah, like some things are going to appear. Even if you're buying turnkey, you know, there's going to be some things mm-hmm. that show up that you didn't expect. And the question you know, sometimes they don't cost a lot of money, but they cost time and emotional energy. And you need to be able to laugh at that stuff because if you don't, uh, I, I just don't think it, this is the right space for you. You know, you, you won't have fun and life is too short not to have a little fun. Yeah. All the stories come from all the messed up stuff that happens to you. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, and it's never, it never throws you under. Like, it sucks, but. Like, it's just funny at the end of the day. It creates life experience and it makes your life a little bit more of an adventure than just punching into the office, punching out, watching Westworld every Sunday night, going back to work the next Monday. That's super true, though. Like, when I talk to my friends and I tell them stories about what's going on, like, yeah, we had a bird fly in through one of our mail slots in the garage door and get into a tenant's house. Like, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think if you're still kind of nervous about, uh, getting started on your own like we've talked about it before i mean if you're younger or you're in a position where you can like house hack live in one of the units and rent the others or rent out rooms in your house like you got to live somewhere just try it out with training wheels and then if you absolutely hate it okay well you were just paying to live somewhere you would be doing that whether you're paying rent or living somewhere else anyway so get started that way or we've talked about it before go partner with an experienced investor say hey i've got money for your next deal just tell me what you just tell me everything you're doing and then you won't be as scared because you're going to get a lot of that experience without you know being on it on your own you don't have to worry about that you know that whatever you did made rational sense. I think that everybody that's younger and in a position to maybe not younger, but just in a position to should house hack for their first deal because like, it's just the best, you know, I mean, we could do a whole episode on it, but like, what is house before we go forward? Just 
clarify it in like a sentence or two for people that are it's basically using your primary residence as a as a real estate investment so you would be either living in one unit of a small multifamily building and rent the others or a large multifamily building if that was your flavor um like you could buy a single family house and rent out the rooms you could buy a dilapidated house and fix it up so that you can flip it um which has a lot of benefits too because then if you live there for two years you don't pay uh you know the capital gains tax uh unless you sell it for yeah what's the what Basically, is it 200 you live and, is your investment yeah that's basics of house hacking and like like i said i mean you're paying to live wherever you're living so if you use that first investment at least as a house hack like you're way ahead of the game mm. financial independence real estate experience i can guarantee you that you're going to learn to be a way better tenant screener if you're living next to the people that you screened because i know at least personally i'm always paranoid with who i pick that i live with because i still house hack in a duplex Mm -hmm. like i i go through their whole history facebook instagram i find mutual friends on facebook and try to talk to them like so you'll become a very good tenant screener if you are renting it's yeah so lots yeah. of beneficial reasons but yeah i'd say that whole like over analysis and just super risk averse behavior with people are the things that keep them from getting started and people that think it's like way more of a hassle than it really is sorry i cut you off though what were you gonna say no, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And to acknowledge there are certain markets, like if you live in New York City, it's going to be very hard to do a house hack. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that there are markets where these strategies are different. Uh, I would, you know, I think in those markets where it, it definitively uh, doesn't work, you, the good news is you probably are making more money than people do in other parts of the country. And you can find, you know, a Tony in some market that, does does work for it and you can actually partner up so you you don't have to do it by yourself it's yeah you can either partner up or just start buying there i mean if you're making a pretty high salary the risk of buying a eighty thousand dollar house in middle america is far less for you yeah so like you can do it out of state that's that's something the bigger i think the bigger pockets uh publishing group has a investing like long distance real estate investing book that I found useful that people could read. All right, that sounds good. And I think we'll actually roll into the next question with Mike, and he has something very kind of related here. It's basically, he's wondering how much money does he need to get it, to get started? Hi, I don't yet own real estate for myself or rent it out, but it is something that I plan on doing in the future uh, when I come into the amount of money needed. So my question is, how much money is needed to get started, would you say? And in the meantime, um, what can I be researching? What can I be learning? What things should I be looking into uh, until then? Thanks. 
So the amount of money is going to depend on like what you're trying to get into. I mean, if you're in a market like we talked about in the last question where you can house hack, you can do like a lower down payment loan and get into it, which might be useful. Um, also, since you're living in the place that you're investing, you can maybe take on a little bit of extra financial risk that you wouldn't be able to if this was just a straight investment property. If it's a straight investment property that you're not living in, not house hacking, uh, your first amount of money is going to depend on what the cost for the repairs are, the initial repairs. Then it's going to come down to like whatever down payment you need and whatever closing costs you need. That's the easy stuff to kind of figure out. Well, at least the closing costs and down payment. Um, the repairs are always not as straightforward. But you don't want to come into this from a position financially where you only have that money. Because I like to say that the only time this business is ever stressful is whenever somebody doesn't have the money to cover their repair or cover their vacancy or cover whatever. So where they come from this from a position of like financial instability where they don't have reserves. So you basically just need to understand your own financial situation and come from this from a position of financial strength. So I like to say that for my properties, I keep a certain minimum reserve account. Uh, for me, it's $8,000 per property. But I have, you know, multiple properties all kind of supporting each other. Um, once you get enough properties, it's like becomes a little bit easier because you have not, it's very unlikely that everything's going to break at the same time. So a lot of times your big reserve account can cover a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. If you only have one property, you might want to adjust that to be more money based on whatever you feel comfortable with. I usually base that reserve account on what the most expensive fix for the house could be. Generally, that's either a roof or a sewer line or something like that. And you, for me, that's usually eight to $10,000. That's how I came up with my amount. So for you, you want to have that set aside just for this property. And that that should not be part of just your normal savings that you keep as a person. That needs to be money set aside for the property. Mm -hmm. Additionally, in your own personal life, you need to make sure that you have your own life in order. Make sure you have a rainy day fund to cover your, you know, personal financial expenses. What do they say? Like three to six months at least. Um, I know that I didn't get started with this much, but if I was to get started again and I had a high salary, I'd be saving up like a year of um, Scott Trench, I think, talks about financial runway in his book. It's just like how much money do you have saved up where you can lose your job and it's fine. Um, that's more like a personal finance type question. But whatever you feel comfortable with in your emergency fund, you need to have that set up before you even start saving to buy a property. Because this property should be a standalone investment that you don't need to draw from your own personal stuff before you get started. That's the most responsible way to do it. If you have like a lower, uh, not lower, but like just even a middle income salary and it's hard for you to save up that much money, then look at other ways you could get started. Look at like house hacking or look at maybe just another market that has cheaper houses than where you are or stuff like that. So, but general, generally, just to summarize for me, make sure that you have at least capital expenses saved up for whatever the most expensive one-off item on the house can be. That's in addition to whatever you budget for repairs for the property, down payment, closing costs, all that stuff. Um, it's generally my advice. Uh, John, do you have anything to add? 
Mm, I would just say you're going to need the down payment in order. So you should expect if you, you know if you're going to live in the house, you can do three and a half percent down. If you're a veteran, you can do zero percent down. And there are certain parts of the country which qualify for um, agriculture loans. These are places in the country typically, and those also. I think it's a 0% down payment. Mm-hmm. Um, USDA loans. Yeah, USDA loan. So those are kind of your down payment options if you're going to live in the place. That's called owner-occupied typically. If you're not going to live in the place, uh, I would expect to do 20 to 25% down of the purchase price. So, you know, look at your market. Uh, you can hop on Zillow or Redfin, and they have median home prices. And you can pretty quickly figure out, like, you know, 20% of that or three and a half percent of that. Um, and then, yeah, uh, to what Tony said, you know, just add 8,000 as a rough back of the hand. You know, you want enough money where you're not freaked out. And uh, and then, yeah, it would be good to have basically three months of uh, rainy day money. So uh, that's more personal finance, though. That was kind of what I was touching on there. Yeah, I, um, I guess I would say like all business is personal on some level and like you're <laughs> sure. going to, you're going to tap into those funds if you're not balancing properly. So, uh, you know, you want money for the house, you want money for yourself, and then you obviously have to, there's closing costs involved. So I would actually book like another, you know, two to $5,000 for closing costs as well. So, you know, you're going to need your down payment, 8,000 and another 5,000 and then some rainy day money. That would be kind of my attempt at a shorter answer there yeah and the dollar amounts are all going to depend on the price of the property and the price of repairs in your area just want to clarify that but if you're looking for like closing costs and down payment just go to your mortgage professional and ask them to give you like a cost estimate for a certain price house in a certain area and then you'll get an idea of like how much all those things cost percentage wise and whatever and then even the eight thousand dollars i think that works for most markets but like I said, you just want to get that whatever the most expensive thing that can happen to you is, at least have that set up in a capital expenditure account. Yeah. Most expensive, reasonable thing. Obviously, if like a meteor hits your house, you're filing. Well, I don't even know if you could get an insurance claim for that, but act of God. I think it's act of God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, because that's the other thing I think of too. Like a lot of the really expensive things that can happen to you that aren't maintenance are going to be covered by your insurance, like fire or flooding if you have the coverage. So that's another important point. Like your CapEx should refer, should also keep in mind like your capital expenditure reserve account that you start with should keep in mind what your insurance coverages are too because i mean if you're not covered for flooding and your house floods like you're going to be out well i guess you're just going to give up on the house then i don't know (laughs) a lot of money (laughs) yeah uh yeah bad day (laughs) to all our folks that invested in houston not too long ago i guess (laughs) right uh, okay. Well, with that, I think we've, I, I don't know, anything to add before we switch on to the next one here? Nope, nothing else. All right, great. So we're going to roll in our next question. Uh, we actually had Joe write in. He's in Los Angeles, and he's saying his market is expensive right now, and he's wondering what other major metropolitan areas uh, are available for investing. You know, where should he be looking? And then we actually have a similar question from Hernandez. Uh, we'll jump over into that right now. 
Hi, this is Hernandez. Uh, I was wondering, what are the things that I should consider? What are the when I'm picking the area when I'm selecting the area for a investment property? I mean, residential specifically. Should I be looking for a property close to schools or maybe where I think there will be more jobs in the future? What is the criteria here? Thank you. So you're thinking about the area, um, the first places that I usually think about or tell people to think about or just whatever's in your backyard. So like whatever you know is usually the first place to start. If you are in a market that's too expensive, like say you're in, you know, New York, uh, San Francisco, anywhere that a lot of major metropolitan areas nowadays, um, places where you can't buy property that cash flows anymore, those might still be good areas if you're not necessarily a straight cash flow investor. Like if you're somebody that's wealthier looking to park money um, for tax advantages or appreciation or whatever, uh, perhaps this market still makes sense. But if you're looking for cash flow, then you're going to look to more like, you know, secondary and tertiary markets usually. Um, when you're looking for those, you're usually looking for places that I like to target uh, areas that have some upward mobility potential, whether that's population growth or job, like job changeover that's improving. So for instance, when I think of Pittsburgh, even though our population is flat, the types of jobs that are in Pittsburgh are changing towards more like kind of technology oriented jobs, which kind of increase the salaries in the area. So even if the population growth remains flat, yet ideally see like improving job prospects so then the overall economy would kind of get boosted a little bit um and then you asked so that's generally what you want to look at for the area like improving or at least stable economy and then population growth too a lot of you don't want to see like huge population decrease because that means that people are leaving and obviously <laughs> you want a tenant base to be able to rent to. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one of the main things. Um, a lot of it's going to come down to like what's your, so like what's your financial criteria. And then you can pick just a few markets to start to evaluate a couple deals, um, kind of see what's out there for you. Uh, but those are the two things that I look for, at least, um, you know, when I talk to out-of-state investors and they ask me what's good about Pittsburgh, I talk about well, you know, even population growth being relatively flat, you're still looking at job market improvement. Um, the other thing that I think of uh, comparing it to some areas too is look for like a diverse economy in the local area, not a place like that's targeted around one industry because if that industry kind of tanks then you're a little bit screwed. So for instance, like Detroit, whenever the auto industry went under like, that market really got hurt because they were very heavily focused in one particular industry. Whereas like where I am in Pittsburgh, we don't really have like a dominant industry that controls the vast majority of the jobs. And the closest to that, that we do have is healthcare and Pittsburgh has an aging population. So what helps healthcare and aging population? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so those are some of the things that's more like in a macroeconomic conversation that, to be honest, um, as somebody that invests in their backyard, I probably don't think about that as much as I necessarily should. Um, I'm just basing that answer off of things that I get from out-of-state investors that I work with, like questions that they have and what they're looking into. Um, 
so that's a little bit on general market and then we can probably talk about next uh like with it once you find a market what you look for in a place but do you have anything to touch on john with like picking a market i know that you kind of moved to pittsburgh because yeah you wanted to invest here yeah um i think broadly like the answer to this question depends um so if you're you know focused on like section eight tenants for example uh things are my answer would be very different but assuming you're not and you're just kind of a i don't want to call run of the mill but kind of a more you know regular investor so to speak uh, yeah. I think there's kind of two two different frameworks I use one is like are you an appreciation investor or are you a cash flow investor and basically your cash flow markets uh, which are ones where you're going to be able to buy a house and have money come every come in every week and you're not depending on the house to increase in value for you to have more money those are basically going to be in what's called the rust belt and the south of the united states maybe some of the midwest as well but um that's that's what i've observed anyway um because you could also say you know if you invested in los angeles in 2008 you're a genius now your money is like <laughs> quadrupled so uh, but you know, it's, it's a different type of investing where you're basically saying, I think this will be worth more in the future. And that's the bet. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of more, uh, uh, there's more faith required, I guess is what I would say. The other framework I use is essentially, uh, the McDonald's Burger King framework, which is <laughs> when you go to McDonald's, it's like, you know, how, how, where do you guys decide where to put stuff? And they, oh, we look at these factors, you know, all the stuff Tony just said, basically. And then they asked Burger King and they're like, we just look for McDonald's and then we put stuff there. <laughs> so uh, we basically looked at Southwest. We looked where there's Southwest hubs um, that kind of met our cash flow requirements. And we said, okay, let's focus in on these markets. Um, you can do that with uh, like Whole Foods, for example, is a good way to see gentrifying areas. Um, urban outfitters can be a tell, you know, and you can basically pick some of these major retailers that are investing massive amounts of resources in trying to identify the appropriate markets to expand into and then go from there. So, uh, that's really smart. Yeah, that was, that was basically our approach to triangulating into the markets. Um, I, I would kind of stay away from these like top 10, top 20 lists, um, you know, it's already in the price of the market by the time you're reading it on some website, typically. Uh, and I really do think these are, you know, areas where you basically have to think from first principles. So look up price to rent ratios in places. If you're cash flow focused, if you're appreciation focused, you know, you have to think about uh, essentially where do you think more people will want to be in the future? Uh, whether you think that's a climate change thing or a water rise thing or, uh, you know, jobs are migrating into different sectors, like Tony said. So in Pittsburgh, uh, one third of all venture capital was invested here in 2018. Um, and in general, the population's flat. So a lot of people look at Pittsburgh and they say, ah, I'm not going to invest there. It's not growing. You know, I'll invest in Texas where the population's growing 15% per year somewhere. Um, so. Uh, sometimes it helps to not kind of pick the first level metrics, which are population growth and some of those things, and instead uh, kind of look at, um, you know, what, uh, what could be wrong about this metric, if that makes sense, and kind of think. Uh, you have to zig where they zag, I guess I'm saying. So you, you do have to be a bit of a contrarian. There is investing 
here. So contrarianism is still important. But yeah, be contrarian and right, <laughs> not contrarian and wrong. <laughs> so that makes sense. And I think one of the things that you pointed out that's useful too is you said avoid like the top 10, top 20 lists. Yeah. The biggest reason for that is like you said at the beginning of your answer, all of this kind of depends on what you want and what your own preferences are. So like, you could read those lists, but you need to put them within your own lens and realize that somebody else is writing that list. They can't tell you that that market's best for you and for what you're doing. So the only useful thing with those lists, I would say, is to maybe come up with like a initial list for yourself with like, which ones do I do more due diligence on? Yeah. Like, hey, I might read a top 20 list. Some of these areas seem cool. I'm going to look into each of them more on my own. Don't just trust the list blindly, so to speak. Agreed. And I also completely agree with your statement about like figure out what the major drivers are. You know, in Los Angeles, it's entertainment, San Francisco, technology, you know, and like mm -hmm. ideally, you don't want to invest in Hershey, Pennsylvania, where the only source of income. Sure is the Hershey Bears, which are funded by the Hershey Chocolate Factory. You know, you want something that's a little more diverse than that. Or, or I guess, you know, the other way to think about it is like, if you're going to put all your eggs in one basket, make sure you watch the basket. But uh, yeah, but maybe you want that small town thing because you want to buy houses that are $20,000 and they rent for 800. Exactly. Like, yeah. As long as you know what you're getting into, that might be fine. I mean, there's tons of people that invest in small towns and right. they, you know, they can make a lot of cash flow because they're buying a $30,000 house, renting it to somebody for $700, $800 a month, and they cash flow a lot. But they also have that risk of the town could just go under, and now they're just left with a house that nobody wants. Then that house turns into the one that has the moss all over the roof and peeling paint and everything like 20 years from now. So yeah. you just kind of have to know what you're getting into before you get into it and pick accordingly. And then the second part of his question is just like picking an area within a market once you select the market. And I think when you do that, you keep, you kind of need to understand like what risk tolerance you have yourself as far as types of tenants, types of problems you might have, um, like what kind of return you're expecting all that sort of stuff because once you get a handle on those personal preferences then you can start to pick what kind of areas you're looking for you also need somebody that's local or you have to be local to kind of say like hey what's the path of progress in like in this town like what are the things that tenants generally like in the area and you know that answer is going to vary like the, the answer to that is it depends. But like for Pittsburgh, for instance, the trend for neighborhoods that tend to improve is everybody wants walkability. So in Pittsburgh, you want like a neighborhood that has like a small business district main street or is close to some sort of public transportation or something like that. Like at least a little stretch that has like 20 shops, like a coffee shop, a little boutique, like a restaurant, whatever, just something local that people can walk to that's easy. So like not every city is that way. I mean, for instance, in Los Angeles, from what I hear, you have to drive everywhere all the time. It's in traffic. Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if everybody there wants walkability, but that's what I hear. Like, so, I mean, every market is going to be different. 
Um, personally, we just shoot for like neighborhoods that have public access, public transportation access to where like professional people are working because we shoot for like kind of B class property or neighborhoods, which to me just means like middle to upper middle income, kind of average school districts, you like solid uh, applicants. So normally you're going to have like either a couple that they want like a two bedroom apartment want for one office and like their bedroom, or you're going to have like a family that's in a decent school district. You're going to have whatever. Those are the neighborhoods that we like to cater to. But then if you're fine renting to students, you can make a lot of money renting a pretty dingy house by the room. So like, if you're cool with that, then you want to target places around the universities. If you want like, hip areas with high rent and everything like that, you're going to have to look for super long business districts with lots of entertainment, bars, like clubs, comedy clubs, whatever's cool. I, I'm not cool enough to even know what's cool, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, you want that kind of thing. So a lot of picking within the market, I think depends on knowing what end customer you want. So like think with the, what is it? start with the end in mind or begin with the end in mind or whatever it is. Um, Know who you want your customer to be and then base your neighborhoods off of that customer. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think to take that theory into practice a little bit, like for single family homes, you know, if you're buying three bedroom, two bathroom place, you know, you're in family territory. Schools are more important. You know, if you're buying Mm -hmm. a two bedroom, one bath, you know, there's not going to be a family there. Schools are not as important. going to be more focused on jobs. Uh, I think you always want to be able to get to a highway within 10 minutes, basically, of any place you're buying or or like a metro or whatever. Um, And then when it comes to multifamily, uh, in general, I think schools are less important. Uh, You know, access to walkability gets more important. Um, And uh, I don't really have any advice on Section 8 because I'm just not as familiar with that in terms of how to think about that. But you know, you also have to think, are you a cash flow investor? Are you an appreciation investor? Mm-hmm. You know, is the neighborhood turning over? What are your thoughts on the different neighborhoods in terms of what communities are coming in? The other, I guess, high level point I would make is a lot of times governments or municipalities do issue their like five or 10 year plan. And they basically state major projects that they're going to do. So we're going to put sidewalks. That they say they're going to do. <laughs> Yeah. Well, they typically do them, but not on the schedule. They think they'll do them on. But, <laughs> exactly. but that at least gives you a rough uh, a rough sense of where the areas of investment will be. Um, and I think if you're doing large commercial, you're competing with people who are reading these same documents. But I don't think that's as explored in the single family and the small multifamily markets where uh, you can essentially say, well, in you know, five to seven years, the city's going to be putting $50 million into this new metro stop or this new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean, metro stop is probably too big of an impact. People are going to know about that. But, I mean, that drives a ton of value into your property. Uh, but, you know, even just adding crosswalks into an area make it much more likely to become that small walkable downtown that candidly everyone does want. And by the way, Tony, mm-hmm. they have those in Los Angeles also, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I thought everybody just had an on-ramp from the highway right to their house. Just yeah. everybody had their own private on-ramp. Yeah. That's, and that's just how you got around. Yeah. They're working on, uh, everyone just has scooters now, actually they don't take cars, but <laughs> okay. that's cool. But, uh, yeah. yeah 
you know, I think thinking about where the city is going to be directing resources can also help you. If, you know, if you're investing on a five to 10 year timeline, that can be useful as well. If you're not uh, familiar with an area and you're there in person, I do two things when I'm looking at, well, three things when I'm looking at places and areas I'm not as familiar with. As far as like street by street stuff, number one, look at the cars that are around. So like you can tell what generally the neighborhood is like by the cars. And I don't necessarily mean that you need to see like BMWs and Mercedes and Audis and all the expensive cars, but you can look at how they're maintained. Like, I mean, if you're in a neighborhood and they're all just kind of basic level cars, if they're all rusted out and crappy and everything like that, every car on the street, like that's probably not the best street because the whole street doesn't care about their cars. There are frugal people who like, yeah, but that's not the norm. Yeah. But but if the whole street is like that, it's generally a bad sign. Yeah. Um, And then additionally, if you're there, during like a holiday like if you're there around halloween or christmas or uh memorial day or whatever it is look for people putting decorations out whether Mm -hmm. it's like just they changed their flag they put a flag out because it's memorial day or they put out halloween decorations alternatively you can also look if it's still (laughs) april and the christmas decorations are still out of the neighborhood probably not a great sign but if people are actually putting up decorations and everything that means that those people on that street and in that neighborhood care about their community enough that they're actually putting something out to make their community look interesting they care about their house they care about where they live usually a good sign for the neighborhood and the last thing i look at is i just look at all the roofs so if you look at the houses around and you look at the roofs you can see if people are actually replacing them Mm. because that's like the most expensive thing for people to do. If the roof looks old and dingy on most every house in the neighborhood, that means that no one in that neighborhood cares enough. It could also mean that everyone on that street rents because landlords are cheap and (laughs) they don't. And generally speaking, the better places to have your rental properties are places where there's like a street with a mix of renters and homeowners. It's usually what I found to be best. It's like the most, kind of like a stable street um grass being cut too like if most of the houses have their grass cut at least not super dingy landscaping that means that people care about their neighborhoods just look for areas that look like they're maintained because even if it's a lower income area if you're on a street that's maintained that's probably a decent part of the lower income neighborhood yeah, agreed. And there's also truly a cry maps, but yeah, I mean, we we could go. Yeah, really those are garbage. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I mean, because like a lot of municipalities, for instance, even the one that I live, um, if it's not required by the FBI, they don't report their crime stats. Mm-hmm. I actually had a police officer tell me that the smaller police departments are only required to report certain things as crimes. So a lot of times, the smaller municipalities will like cook their data so that it looks better than it really is. Hmm. Um, he was telling me that. I don't know how true it is, but I just know that like there's areas that show up as like low crime on Trulia. And like I know for a fact that's probably not true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just low crime that is caught and penalized in court. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think overall we've pretty 
unpack this pretty well. I'm trying to think if there's anything we missed. But uh, there's there's like a thousand things, but that's pretty much everything that I can think of now. Yeah, we'll we'll say this. If you still have questions, just call back in and ask your specific question. Exactly. <laughs> All right. With that, let's uh we'll take it into the uh, recap and the uh, the close it out. So to recap what we talked about, we basically said to get started, you're going to need your down payment. You're going to need uh, what Tony says is the biggest expense that could reasonably happen. Let's say that's roughly $8,000. Then you're going to need closing costs. You can basically book those as about $5,000. And then recommend you have a little money on the side just in case things get a little bumpy in your personal life. But we don't want to tell you how to live your life financially. Um, in terms of why people don't get started, we say they overanalyze, they get into analysis paralysis, and to use Tony's phrase, they don't have a roll the dice mentality. Uh, and I guess my positive framework would be, you, you need to think, you know, this is gonna be an adventure. Buckle in, let's do it. And then we talked about picking areas. Uh, Tony was basically saying, look at some of the large statistics in terms of population growth, job growth, you know, what are the industries that drive the area? And are you focused on having cash flow come in every month? Or do you uh, think about this in terms of an appreciation investment with tax benefits? Uh, I basically said, just pick a store, see where they're building stores, and then go there. <laughs> uh, and then in terms of uh, uh, picking your specific neighborhood. I, th I think if I had to really summarize it, it would be something like have an idea of what you want and talk to your, talk to your very good agent. Uh, I, I don't have a good way to actually summarize everything we said there. Do you have sort of a brief one-liner, Tony? Know what you're looking for and then have that situated before you pick the neighborhood. So yeah. know, know, start with your customer in mind, what kind of tenants you want and then pick your neighborhoods based on the tenants. Or if you're like a flipper or something, what kind of customer do you want as far as who's buying your property? Yeah, well done, well done, awesome. So with that, let's uh, jump into what's something you learned this week that you could share with everybody. You first. Uh, for me, we are using Groupons to get our gutters cleaned. So, uh, you know, spring is coming up. Uh, we're getting big downpours and getting your gutters cleaned is just a huge pain. So, uh, <laughs> we actually found out, you know, there's a company that has a Groupon running. I think it was about 75 bucks, which seemed like a great price to us. And, uh, basically got the guys out and they were willing to take pictures of the roof and send us essentially proof that they cleaned the gutters. So very, very happy with that find. Uh, very happy nice. with the company and the price. Yeah, they also, uh, if you buy a house and like you just bought a place, they usually send like coupon packets in the mail, at mm -hmm. least here, where it's like, get your ducks clean for $90 a duct. And then they show up and then they're like, yeah, actually you have, like this only <laughs> includes one and you have 30, but <laughs> at least you can get one clean. <laughs> um, Great. So, Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um my tip is that consistency is key towards growth. So no matter what you're doing, whether it's your real estate investing or something, just make sure that you do one thing, no matter how big or small, but one thing every day that pushes you ahead. Whether that's like analyze one deal, talk to one other person, uh, put in one offer, 
you know, review your lease, like whatever it is, something that pushes you forward, do it every day. Because even if those things are small, by the end of the year, you're going to have done 365 activities that have pushed you further in your business. Mm -hmm. So like, just make sure that this isn't something that you're just dedicating one eight hour block when you're super excited and you're like, oh, I'm excited that I'm going to spend all day working on drafting a lease. It's like, that's great. Harness that energy. But small steps done consistently are going to be far more impactful in your journey as a real estate investor than one or two super active days, just yeah. like the gym. Yeah. Agreed. Make it a habit. Yep. Awesome. Okay. Well, let's sign them off. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you want more, check us out at BeFreeRE on Instagram and let us know what you thought. Stay free.